Section number 57 of Frontier Humor in Verse, Prose, and Picture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Trip to the Interior A flying trip into the interior has not favorably impressed me. There were too many mosquitoes, too many graybacks. It is too far from civilization and too nigh the sun. I stopped overnight in a small city, and the first thing that attracted my attention on entering the place was the pale and sickly look of the inhabitants. This I attributed to the fever and ague, the hot weather, and impure river water which they drink. I was credibly informed by several parties that their pallor was owing to the quantity of blood that is nightly extracted from their veins by the mosquitoes. From the number of these pests infesting the place, it has taken the name of the Mosquito City. Those people who cannot indulge in such a luxury as mosquito bars have to sleep during the day. They sit up nights and wage war against their ferocious enemies with tobacco smoke, burning leather, wet towels, or any other weapon to which they can conveniently resort. To be stung by a black hornet or a scorpion is bad. To be bitten by a tarantula or rattlesnake is worse. But to be punctured to the bone by the bugle of one of these mosquitoes is terrible. They are enormous insects. When flying through the air, they are as discernible as thistledown or even hummingbirds. The sharp tube through which they sap their victim's blood is fully three-quarters of an inch long and resembles a cambric needle. This they steadily and unhesitatingly press into the flesh until they either strike a bone or their forehead prevents them from doing deeper injury. Towards evening they rise with pining maws from the low, damp land around the city, innumerable as the blades of green that carpet the vale of San Joaquin. And as they close in upon the devoted inhabitants, their blended cries swell in pitch and compass until the sound resembles the impassioned tone of a fish peddler's horn. I stopped at a hotel in the lower part of the city, and before retiring for the night looked carefully about the room. As few mosquitoes were in sight, I concluded to sleep without using the bar. Congratulating myself on being assigned a room where so few of the common enemy of man were lying in wait, I extinguished the light and turned in. Scarce was I stretched upon the couch when... At once there rose such hungry yells, from every point the compass tells, that I lost no time in striking a light and adjusting the netting. I now saw them emerging from every conceivable hiding place. Trooping they came, from behind picture frames, from under the bureau, out of vases and old empty bottles. They were climbing and clambering and pitching towards me with energy. I noticed a steady stream of them shooting out of the closet through the keyhole, with such velocity that they went warping halfway across the apartment before they could check themselves sufficiently to tack around and dive for the bed. They had all they bargained for to get safely through that keyhole, too. There was not much spare room, I can tell you. Before the great pressure from behind kept up by the others anxious to get through, many a large fellow would have been sticking in that opening yet. But once they got started in, there was no backing out. No, indeed. On, on was the cry, and they pressed forward with a rush, often sacrificing a leg or wing by the maneuver. But they didn't seem to care for the loss of one of those members so long as their bill remained intact. 
Deprive a mosquito of one wing, and he will seem to laugh at you while he makes the other do double duty. Brush off one leg, and he will shake the remaining ones triumphantly in your face. But damage his bill, and you demoralize him at once. He becomes immediately disheartened. He loses caste among his companions and confidence in himself. He wobbles about here and there to no purpose like an old bachelor. You deprive him at once of his song and his supper. You can hardly picture to yourself a more dejected insect, one more hopelessly down in the mouth. He withdraws to the ceiling or curtain and looks with envious eyes upon his associates gorging themselves while his poor digestive organs are drying through inactivity. We would be inclined to pity him in this sad condition were it not that we hold the whole insect race as coming under our ban. The whine of disappointment, long, loud, and quavering, that went up when they ascertained I was protected, will always remain a fixture in my memory. As they closed around the bed, so numerous were they, their flight was actually impeded. Down they settled with locked wings on the bar above me, thick as snowflakes around some old uprooted pine by the Madawaska. I had long heard of the mosquitoes of this locality, and was prepared for an introduction to formidable insects, but found them even worse than I expected. Discouraged by the mosquitoes, I fled to a neighboring city, only to find that it is the stronghold of fever and ague. In other parts, it may be more active for a few months of the year, but here it stays by the people, like their consciences. The winds may rise and comb the valley until the very grass is lifted by the roots and borne to the mountains. The sun may grow weary of well-doing, enter Capricorn, and for a season be hid. Or the rains may descend until the narrow slough, by which the city is situated, becomes a wide-spreading lake through which ships of the line might plow with safety, but the chills and fever stays by them still. There's no shaking it off. It holds its grip like a mortgage. The tender limbs of the newborn babe and the pitless bones of ripe old age shiver alike in its awful grasp. The citizens of this sad place are a serious, matter-of-fact people who seem to think it was not the original intention that men should spend any time in laughter, for they indulge very little in witticisms or humor. A good joke is often lost upon them, and the perpetrator of a bad one places himself in jeopardy. A person who attempts a pun that does not carry its point before it like a swordfish is in danger of being immediately seized from behind and hurried in the direction of the insane asylum. While stopping in this delightful place, I visited the small theater of which the inhabitants are justly proud, and shall never forgive myself if I fail to mention the orchestra that discoursed most eloquent music on that occasion." Whether the regular musicians of the theater were on a strike for higher wages, and the manager was obliged to bring in outside talent, I did not learn. But certain it was, the sole instrument that kept the audience awake between the acts, the night in question, was a large piece, a bassoon, I think, filled and manipulated by a stout-spectacled representative from the Faderland. In addition to the musician's frog-shaped body, which of itself would doubtless have attracted my attention, he had a head that was truly a study. To say he was bald is to make a remark that would be applicable to about two-thirds of the gentlemen in the theater. But to say that his head was as smooth, as shiny, and devoid of hair, from the eyebrows to the very nape of the neck, as a billiard ball, is hardly doing the head justice. It seemed actually peeled. 
Besides, it was of a conical form, and as I looked upon it, I thought what an advantage it would have been to me in my younger days if I had had some such thing in the barnyard, over which to break pumpkins for the cattle. I am certain a pumpkin or squash brought down upon such an object with well-centered precision would fly into as many fragments as the Turkish Empire. I was not the only person whose attention was arrested by that marvelous development. If a diamond the size of a rutabaga had suddenly flashed, the audience would scarcely have turned with greater haste to contemplate its beauties than they did to regard that head the instant the hat was removed. It had such a smooth and polished surface that the actors, as they passed back and forth upon the stage, were mirrored out upon it in Lilliputian proportions. The large globe light was reflected so perfectly upon that glossy scalp that it shed a positive light to remote corners of the auditorium, and a person would look first at the head, then up at the globe, and then down at the head again, and then hardly be prepared to decide from which object the original rays of light proceeded. The musician had one original turn which afforded me much amusement. At the commencement of a tune he would sit facing the stage, which was proper enough, but as he proceeded he would turn by degrees until he was sitting full face to the audience. The gods in the gallery seemed to consider it their especial privilege to pelt his head with peanuts, and when one would happen to hit, which was quite often, it would bound and skip from the polished object in a manner that would invariably bring down the house. Standing as it did in bold relief from the dark panelwork and drapery behind, it was a most excellent and inviting mark. Man though I am, with the sobering cares of life closing gloomily around me, I actually regretted I couldn't try a shot at the old codger's head myself. It has been said, the king of shadows loves a shining mark. If this is so, how that musician managed to escape the arrows so long is more than I can understand. For many a year, he certainly has presented a target worthy the whole archery of the realm of death. The evening's entertainment was made up of selections from Shakespeare's tragedies, Macbeth and Othello. The principal actor, whose name I forget, was the oddest and hungriest-looking player I ever saw stalk across a stage, or foam and fret in histrionic effort. He looked as though he had been dangling from the lowest spoke of fortune's wheel for the last twenty years. His makeup was terrible also, and after I learned the performance was not an intentional burlesque, I could hardly keep from hooting whenever he appeared. As the evening advanced, however, he warmed up considerably. When he appeared as the murderous thane, moving toward the apartments of his slumbering victim, huskily repeating the thrilling lines, The bell invites me, I go and it is done. He looked every inch a villain, and the little theater rung again with the clapping and clattering of the enthusiastic audience. In Othello, his dress was even worse than in Macbeth. In the scene, where he smothers Desdemona, he was barefooted and looked supremely ridiculous. I would have given double the amount I paid for admission for the glorious privilege of kicking him across the stage. The customary pitcher-shaped lamp which the Moor usually bears in his hand upon this occasion and to which he alludes when he says, If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore, should I repent me, was not procurable. The tragedian, therefore, carried a candle stuck in the neck of a large wine bottle, and under his left arm he carried a pillow about the size of a single-bed mattress, 
with which to put out the light of the fair Desdemona, who was lying upon a lounge at the left of the stage. I was too great a lover of Shakespeare to sit longer by and witness the terrible butchery. I rose and left the house, and as I passed out, the pitying glances of the audience informed me that they didn't understand the real state of affairs, but thought I was taken suddenly ill. I was ill at ease, and had been during the entire evening. On the way down the next morning, an overland passenger made my acquaintance on the cars, and while conversing about the long snowsheds and tunnels he had passed, I informed him of the long tunnel through which we would pass on leaving the valley. "'Are we near that tunnel now?' he asked. "'Yes,' I answered. "'We will enter it in about fifteen minutes.' "'Is the tunnel dark?' he inquired. "'Yes, very dark,' I replied. Ten shades darker than a cloudy midnight. "'Oh, by jingo!' he cried. "'That's just the thing for me. "'I forgot to put on a clean shirt last night, "'and I hate like the deuce to arrive at my destination "'looking as I do now. "'Do you think a fellow would have time "'to put a shirt on while passing through it?' "'He continued earnestly.' "'Oh, he might,' I answered, "'if he had it ready before reaching the tunnel. "'Well, I'll try a pull anyway,' he said, "'as he took down the valise from a rack overhead "'to select the garment. "'I'll have it all ready for a hoist,' he continued. "'And if I don't climb into it faster than a spark into a chimney, "'I'm not what I think I am, that's all.' "'And with a look of determination, "'he went to a seat in the rear of the car "'and for a time seemed busily engaged "'in preparing for the great change.' I had made an error in regard to the time that would elapse before we reached the tunnel, and the result was we reached it before he was fully prepared for it. Into it the locomotive plunged with a wild scream. Gloom closed around the passengers, hiding the nearest objects from their view. On we sped. The rattling of the trucks told us rail after rail was passed, but still a darkness that might be felt enveloped the rushing train. Those who were conversing as the car entered the tunnel, stopped as though the icy hand of death had been laid upon their throat. The half-uttered word rusted upon the tongue, and the tunnel, like a long dash, stretched between the parts of a sentence. I thought of the passenger, doubtless by this time struggling into his linen, and turned around in my seat facing him. With considerable interest I waited the return of light. At last it came glimmering far ahead, Plainer and plainer the objects grew around, and, first and most noticeable of all, was the tall form of the passenger from over the mountains, leaning over the seat in front of him, enveloped in his snowy linen, his hands stuck in the sleeves at the elbows, and his head vainly endeavoring to shoot through the opening at the neck, which in his haste he had neglected to unbutton. Notwithstanding his head was enveloped, he was conscious that light had dawned upon the scene, and his struggles and frantic thrusts became painful to look upon. Finally the fastening at the neck gave way, and his face came through the opening red as a pickled beet. Fortunately, most of the passengers were sitting with backs toward him, and but a few witnessed the terrible struggle. One old lady, however, got nearly frightened out of her wits. When objects began to grow visible around her, she became suddenly apprised of the startling fact that a white figure was bent over her, with outstretched wings fanning the air, and she very naturally came to the conclusion that an angel was about to gather her to her father's. The ashen look of the poor old body as she stole a glance over her shoulder at the white object behind showed that however fitted she was, in respect of years, 
for the final taking off, she was anything but willing to start upon such an uncertain journey. End of section 57. Read by Lisa Gibson, Lincoln, Montana, December 21st, 2021.